a startup is a weird, chaotic, unnormal place. And it rewards people who are comfortable with that. And, you know, I think an artist probably thrives more easily in that kind of hothouse. It's fair to say it's not for everybody. That's the voice of Tim Westergren, co-founder of music streaming service Pandora. Tim built a music company in the midst of the dot-com meltdown, and in spite of being unable to even pay his employees for two years. But in the end, Tim's aesthetic vision for a different future prevailed. This is Mike Maples Jr. of Floodgate, and it's go time with Tim Westergren. Welcome to Starring Greatness, a podcast dedicated to ambitious founders who want to go from nothing to awesome super fast. When you're a startup founder, you have to channel your inner James Bond, your MacGyver, your Wonder Woman. I'm going to help you win by curating the lessons of the super performers, but before they were successful. So without further ado, ignition sequence start. Let's get started. Tim Westergren was a rock and jazz musician before he was a startup founder, but his passion for music led him to the Music Genome Project, which was the basis of what would ultimately become Pandora. Tim offers many lessons about how some of the greatest startups come from a desire to create an aesthetically better future, and not just a business that makes money. And as we will see, this intense desire that came from Tim's soul played a great role in overcoming incredible obstacles against all odds. Let's talk to him. Tim Westergren, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, thanks for coming. So Pandora, quite an interesting journey, uh, and obviously it got to the promised land, but how did, how did Pandora start in the first place, and, and, and how is it different from what it ended up being? Ah, quite different. Uh, it was kind of a harebrained idea, really something that would only have been funded in 2000, which is when we fund, which, when we got started. Kind of formally January of 2000, okay. we raised that, our first... the right time. Yes. <laughs> we raised our first round of financing in, in the early March of 2000, so really just a couple of weeks before yep. the whole thing went off a cliff. And it was the idea for it was something that came out of my own experiences as a musician. So I'd spent my 20s uh, and very early 30s playing in rock bands. Okay. And living out of a van, you know, being part of the working world, uh, musician's world. But, but you, you went to Stanford undergrad and then I did. decided to go be a, be <laughs> a guy living out of a van yeah. in a band. Yeah, even more, yeah, even worse, I, my first job out of college was a nanny. Okay. So I was a manny is the right word for that. I was a manny for five years after college. Okay. And my well, life... What did you major in? Poli-sci. Okay. So, you know, law school or bust. And, you know, my life after college, I spent... 78 hours a day playing piano and taking care of kids and that was my life um then went into playing band and with bands and then the last few years of my sort of professional music life i was a film composer okay and so so you've never had a business job no up up to this point no i like to think of being in a band as my first startup and there's we can go into that there's a lot of similarities they're more alike than most people (laughs) think um but when i was a film composer um i essentially spent my time uh, talking with their film directors and trying to figure out what they wanted for their music, for their for their for their uh, movie, and we would essentially have these conversations about you know sound. We'd play songs together and 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 sort of I'd get their feedback on music, and I I developed this sort of methodology of of building a taxonomy of someone's taste, mm-hmm. 
And that idea eventually one day was triggered by an article I read actually in the newspaper. Uh, I thought, heck, I've got this way of being able to understand what someone likes and, and turning that into a composition. What if I could codify that and build some kind of music discovery recommendation engine and by marrying it to math, you know, release it online and, and kind of be part of this sort of large online music phenomenon. So it's, it's, uh, it's early 2000 yeah. and you've got this idea. I guess you don't know how to write code. Did you have any technical background? None whatsoever. Um, I'm a musician fundamentally and I actually had two co-founders. Okay. Um, so one was sort of the founding CEO it was a college classmate of mine named John Kraft. Okay. Terrific guy who, um, Kind of was our, you know, he had, he had, he had already actually uh, founded and sold the company. So he'd been through the whole life cycle. Okay. And he was the first guy I approached with the idea after my wife and said, heck, you know, that's really intriguing. Let's see if we can't get some money for it. And, and then a friend of his, Will Glazer, was the founding CTO. So he mm. brought the technical chops. Okay. And it was the three of us that kind of got it off the ground. So you got started. You raised money in 2000. How much did you raise? So, yeah, we raised a million and a half, got, you know, studio apartment in South San Francisco, you know, packed it full of desks and some whiteboards and, and hired folks and began building the product, the sort of first version of it, which was, you know, essentially this, what we called the music genome project. Uh-huh. Um, and it was a musical taxonomy, a big database of songs, essentially hundreds of musical attributes that we designed that were then analyzed by uh, real live musicians manually, song by song. And then associated with that was a set of algorithms that would take those scores essentially and build a sort of a search function where you could take one song and compute proximity to other tunes and so we kind of architected this from scratch um and took us about a year to build the prototype and that was a really incredible inventive creative uh experience interestingly about a year in we put it to the test and we had essentially analyzed a bunch of songs about 10,000 songs musicians had actually listened to and, and, and scored along a couple hundred musical attributes per song. And we entered all that data into Microsoft Excel. Mm-hmm. So we had a table of 10,000 rows by you know 200 columns. And Will had written a macro, an Excel macro, that would allow you to take any song in that collection and essentially put it in the source box and type match, and it would rank order every song by proximity. Okay. So we kind of... We had this big moment where, okay, let's see. Let's see what happens. We punched in a Beatles song and then hit, hit rank and waited for you know a couple minutes <laughs> for the macro <laughs> to work. The first match that popped out was a BG song, and we thought, oh, oh fuck, no. yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work, you know, okay. <laughs> like we're screwed. But then we listened to the song and it sounded like a Beatles tune, a dead ringer for our source song. And we realized when we did a little research that the BGs before they became a disco sensation were actually a Beatles knockoff band. Yeah, they were Australia, signed. Yeah, they were signed by Brian, by the same uh, manager that signed uh, the Beatles. Oh, okay, we went from de- despair to elation in a, in a short moment because we realized, wow, one, it really matched well, but just as importantly, it put together two artists that no other system would ever yeah totally put side by side. Yeah, and that's because the genome, unlike every other recommendation technology or most at the time, which were primarily data or sort of collaborative filtering based approaches, they would never they wouldn't connect those two. Yeah. But we were just about the sound of the music. Mm-hmm. And that was the fundamental sort of reason for this technology is 
it's the one way to make recommendations that's blind to popularity. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way to be sort of a democratic system where, you know, the brand new artist has just as much of a chance as playing alongside the Springsteen tune as, you know, another superstar. Interesting. So, so now you've got this, what looks like the beginnings of this music genome capability, Yeah. but it's still a spreadsheet Yes. and it's a little over a year after 2000. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now what happens? (laughs) So yeah, this is when things began to get a little tricky, shall we say. (laughs) 2001, so 2000, the carnage begins, right? And um, we were pretty bunkered up for a while building our product, but as the year wore on and we started to think about raising more money, we went out and started some of the conversations and it was quite clear that it was going to be a completely different experience because, you know, the door slammed shut behind us in March. And... You know, it was just companies were failing, you know, portfolios were in free fall. And it was clear that it was not going to be easy for us to raise money. And so knowing that in 2001, we began trying to stretch our money out. So we started asking for our employees to defer an ever larger share of their salary and in options, essentially. Okay. And uh, that share grew and grew until sometime I'd say the end of 01, I think we stopped paying people altogether. That was a st- essentially about 50 people worked for almost about two years without getting paid uh, okay, to okay. get us across oh, well, the bridge. So, okay, <laughs> so it's, it's mid-2001, mm. and it becomes clear that it's going to be hard to raise. Yeah, Times are tight, so you start paying people less, yes. and then you start paying people nothing. Yes. For how, for two years. Yeah, about two years. Yeah. Two years. Okay. Okay. How did you, like, <laughs> who does that? Like, like who, who decides, okay, I'll stay for two years without getting paid in the nuclear meltdown? So it's a, you know, it's a complex answer to that question. Um, and it's one thing to do it for a month or two. Yeah. To do it for two years is a different kettle of fish entirely. I've reflected a lot, of course, on this. And I think there are a handful of things that allowed that to happen. For starters, I do think that regardless of whether we, how well the business was doing or what the prospects looked like, everybody was very excited about this thing we'd built. You know, mm-hmm. So it was like magic. You'd type in a song, and we would build a web interface eventually, and you'd get some recommendations. And it was just, you know, you'd yeah. find, you'd get some things, some, some of which you knew, but some of which you'd never heard before. So it was like this little font of discovery. And so I think there was a fundamental kind of excitement about that. And I think that never went away. Mm. The second thing I think, you know, as the three founders certainly led from the front. So we were the first ones to defer. You know, we were, I think that we showed, we led by example. And I think people were inspired by that. Um, So that that, that was important. But then I think uh, a sort of funny thing happens in these situations where you do it for a few months. And it's a bit like, I think, being at the casino, you know. After you've been for a little while and you're down, you're like, okay. I just got to be a little longer, yeah. like a little longer and I'll get, get there, you know? Yeah, yeah, I can't, I can't back out now, you know? And I also think at the same time, there's a certain kind of a loyalty you develop for each other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think they say this about a lot of sort of adverse situations where people are in groups, they kind of wind up doing things for themselves, for themselves, uh, yeah. for each other rather than for some larger purpose. Yeah. And I think that happened too. And we had a handful of just really, committed employees who I think inspired others. And, and so rather than kind of falling apart, which I think tends to happen pretty quickly if it happens, we sort of came together and it was like, okay, man, we're in this. We're going to dig in. We're going to go. And, and, and then, you know, one month led to another, led to another. And, you know, before you knew it, I mean, I maxed out 11 credit cards. 
I had hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. I was so far up a creek by the end of it. You know, I pitched Pandora 348 times before getting our second round of financing. I think that uh, it's very rare for people to stay at a company for two years without getting paid in Silicon Valley, yeah. right? <laughs> um, perhaps, you, you know, your background as a musician in a, in a band, that kind of comes with a territory maybe, right? Yeah. You kind yeah. of like, if you get paid or you make any money, it's like, sweet, that's yeah. outside, right? You, you certainly don't go into it for the money. Yes. Now, did you have a lot of people at Pandora who kind of had that ethos or were they more typical Silicon Valley developer types and it's like whoa, this is uncharted territory. It was a very eclectic collection of people. Some were certainly more traditional engineer types. There were a bunch of musicians um, as, as well. Um, I would say for all of them, this was a very extreme choice, though. Uh-huh. Um, you're right, though, that for me, being in a band prepared me for this in lots of ways. You know, yeah. A band is basically, much like a startup, you're making it up as you go. You have no money. You're told no all the time. Uh-huh. You know, you face nothing but adversity half the time, and you know it's it's it's, it's lonely. You feel like you're kind of throwing time away because you're doing this thing that's unlikely to succeed. And you wonder if you're right. Yeah, and you've place. got and yeah, yeah. you've got all the same team dynamics. You got a small group. It's creative. You know, you've got roles and responsibility issues, etc. So it was a bit of a. It was kind of like startup school. It toughened me up, and it certainly got me comfortable with risk. It was a very stressful experience those two and a half, two, three years or so. And I certainly thought for a good part of that that I had really made a giant mistake and convinced a lot of other people to make the same mistake with me. And, and I experienced you know, a tremendous stress from that. It wasn't an unfamiliar life from what I had before. It's, it's a friend of mine, uh, Todd McKinnon, who we funded at Okta, has said uh, sometimes you have to believe even when you don't believe. Yeah, you know that, that, that's absolutely true. You, yeah. you won't be able to do the job. Yeah, you just keep going. Yeah, you just yeah. keep going. So now it's your two years. You, two years after not paying anybody, you decide. Yeah. I mean, duh, you need to raise your <laughs> capital, right? Uh, like, what is your pitch? And like you said, how many firms did you pitch? Three hundred and forty-eight pitches. Some more than once. So okay. there was there's less than three hundred and forty-eight distinct firms in there. But yeah, I, I mean, I had pitched anybody with a pulse in Silicon Valley. I mean, the pitch certainly evolved over time. And, and one thing that we were, we, we were able to do during those two years was get a couple key licenses. So we did actually sell it as a technology to AOL, Best Buy, and Borders. Okay. And none of those were you know, lucrative contracts, but it was validation that someone paid something for it. And we had beat out every other company trying to license to those same customers. Okay. okay. And I got to put three nice, big, shiny logos on my PowerPoint when I was out trying to raise money, probably okay. most important of all. And I think what happened was during those couple of years, as I you know, obviously got better at pitching um, and understanding you know, how to position the, the company, I think there were sort of two things that eventually got us over the hump. Again, like I said, the product was magical. And we gave the, the investors password-protected access to the product uh, when they were diligencing us. And although I got no's from everybody, they always would write, like, we're not interested, but can I keep my password? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, it really worked. Um, and the second thing was we wouldn't die. Yeah. And I think that eventually, I'm, I'm, I think Larry Marcus would say this, who was the partner at Walden that led the investment, would say that you know, part of what convinced him was that the company was so tough. Yeah. And, and it was, you know, that, that was confidence inspiring for someone to take a risk. So then, okay. So you, so you raised some money. 
How much did you raise in your second round? We raised $9 million. Oh, sweet. Yeah, okay. of which $2 million literally went out the door the next day to pay or back pay salaries. Back. And, and so, and when Walden funded you with the $9 million, did they know that a bunch of it was, did that come up in diligence that you owed all this money to people? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they knew. They wow. knew. Wow, so they had to take the risk that, not, well, not only did not all the money go into the company, but they had to take the risk that somebody would show up out of left field. So if I guys. if I kind of remember, yeah, that's true. There were the handful of people that sued us, you know, a couple we settled with and paid out, and then a couple, I think, sort of agreed to, like, hold off and yeah. get us across the finish line. But it was dicey, uh, certainly. And, and those guys took a big risk. Um, and people had invested in that round, like you said. Someone could have come out of the woodwork. You also had $2 million that was going to go out. And that was, that was a promise I had an agreement I made with the employees, which is if we ever raise more than a certain amount, we're going to pay you back. There, were, there was another inve- uh, investor interested who was not, who would have invested, but wasn't willing to make that payout. Mm-hmm. And that just wasn't an option for us. So, okay. So now you've got... so. You've raised this money. Like, what? What was the? What was the premise that you raised nine million dollars on? Like, what was the? What was the go forward plan? Underneath it all, it was we've got this big batch of IP and this really cool capability. We had made some progress in the kiosk space, believe it or not. One of our detours was uh, to build web-enabled kiosks. So we'd partner with NCR and IBM and had some deployments and retailers, and. It was, there was some prospect of that building some cash flow for the business. Uh, again, that's not what they bet on. But what they did like about it was we were doing what we could. You know, we were, we were surviving by improvising. And, yeah. you know, at the time, the web was basically dead for music and there were still brick and mortar stores. And so we just kind of turned our attention to that. And, okay, maybe we can do something here to keep ourselves alive, to to um, repurpose the tech. We had a tremendous creative director. It was a great designer who built, Dan Lithcott-Hames, who um, designed a wonderful interface for the, you know, so we had some good skills. Frankly, like for the company, it gave you also something to kind of anchor around, you know, instead of kind of waiting for some miracle to happen one day. Like, okay, we're doing something. We're getting some customers. We're getting paying customers. Okay, like this is, something's happening here. This isn't just a theoretical thing that we built. You know, it's funny because um, one of the, in fact, in an earlier episode with Steve Blank, we talked about how uh, most people, when they think of startup founders, they they categorize them either as like engineers because that's Uh what they've been before, or they categorize them as a, a type of business profession. Steve and I tend to believe that the artist is actually a better metaphor than the startup founder. <laughs> uh-huh. Like there's a part of me that thinks you are better prepared to do a startup than most startup CEOs because li- you had been an artist literally, yeah. uh, you know, in the decade leading up to it. So I'm just curious, like how did being a musician help you be a, a startup founder? It's about insight and it's about, you know, it's, it's about, uh, yeah, invention. And I think a startup is art. There's a different kinds of art. There yeah. are some that feel a little, maybe more like graphic design. <laughs> yeah. But a startup is by definition, it's an irrational thought. It's a thought that has not been had before. Yeah. And that is done by kind of getting outside of the mold. Yeah. And, you know, for me, that moment was, you know, kind of connecting the dots in my head about, you know, playing in a band and the problem of discovery, being a being a film composer and taxonomy of music and watching the web happening around me and understanding, gosh, lots of music hard to find. And then reading an article about this musician, Amy Mann, actually, who was this kind of tweener artist who should have a bigger audience. But and, 
you know, it's, it's sort of spotting, oh, connect those dots. Ah, here's an idea. And I also think that a startup is a weird, chaotic, unnormal mm-hmm. place. Yeah. And it rewards people who are comfortable with that. Um, and, uh, you know, I think an artist, an artistic sensibility yeah. probably thrives more easily in that kind of hothouse. Um, yeah, because yeah, so. I, I think back to like when I was in business school and I learned a lot, but this is the thing I didn't learn. When, when you think about the early days of Pandora, it was keeping people together in service of the idea that was yeah. what mattered. And, and the skills of an artist just seem 10 yeah. times more relevant than the skills of a business person. I think the ideal combination is the artist who's a salesman. When I think back about the key moments in the first five years of Pandora that allowed us to go from where we were through that crazy, that crazy period and then into this new product, I think of the key moments about the moments when I influenced someone mm-hmm. important yep. to make a decision that helped us. And that might have been a key employee or an executive at a customer um, or a consumer, you know, a, a journalist, yep. you know, that if you got someone around to your side to like want to help you, yeah. they were, they were probably, I could probably boil down a couple dozen of those and you say, put those all together. You put, take those 24 things together. That was like the foundation for why we got through this. I could probably boil it down to not too many of them. Yeah. And, and those are, you can't prepare for those things. And the, you, you don't know? convince those, you don't convert those people. Yeah. You don't have, there's no Pandora. Yeah. And, and, and to influence those people, you have to be creative. Like how do you, how you get someone, you know, I, I had to uh, influence AOL our way and to get to this key decision maker there. I did a whole bunch of things that just required you to kind of think, how do I get to this person? Who can influence them? And how do I get that person engaged? And, you know, you, you create this little crumb trail that gets you to this person, but in the right way. Mm-hmm. So they don't quite aware of it, but all of a sudden they're like, oh, I should, I should meet. This is an interesting company. And bam, you know. I mean, I went, I'm a decent basketball player and, and I, there was someone I needed to influence in the legal profession who was a good ball player. I knew he played, I knew he played a three on three pickup game down in LA. I got to get invited to this, you know? So I figured out how to get there and then I figured out how to be on his team uh-huh. so that we could have this kind of like moments of playing together. And then we had a great game and you know what it is, like it's sort of, yep. okay, all of a sudden he's got, I've got his number and, you know, and we're talking and that's just one piece of the puzzle. Yep. And I think startup is just hundreds and hundreds of those things, yep. essentially. And had you ever had any experience in doing that before starting Pandora, or was this in a band? Before? In a band. In a band. You know, trying to get booked at a club, you got to influence the club owner. You know, uh-huh. it's you want to get you want to open for another act because they got a good audience. How do you get to them? How do you sort of you know it's it's networking. You know, it's it's there's yeah. similarities. So you're doing kiosks. Uh, how far are you through this $9 million then on this new kiosk plan? So we are, when that money came around, we had, we, we were starting to get some deployments, like going to three or four or five stores type of thing, so early pilot. Uh-huh. But at the same time, we kind of circled the wagons and said, okay, like, what's the big play here? Let's sort of think strategically more broadly. We hired a new CEO. I brought a guy named Joe Kennedy in who was fantastic and a sort of a consumer marketing guy. And we collectively sort of brainstormed, like, where do we go with this? And, um, and radio sort of became apparent as a, a place we ought to think about. 
And so we launched kind of a Skunk Works project, essentially peeled off some engineers and some designers to build the sort of what we called one-click custom radio. Hmm. And the idea was to take this whole recommendation and sort of matching technology we had and turn it into sort of a playlist. Hmm. It's, it's actually perfectly suited for this specific yeah. function because it's a song-based system. Yep. It's sonic, so it, it's... It means you can get musical consistency. You can. It's actually well suited to radio-like applications, and we st- we launched it, and 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 it was like a you know a, a Skunk Works project. Uh, it took us a I guess a little less than a year to to build the prototype, and then we s- tested it. I would say it was obvious the moment I saw the prototype inside the office that this was where we should be, but as soon as consumers got their hand on it, which we did in this private test, it was obvious. And so when was this? So uh, like uh, October of 2005. What actually happened is we we gave it to a couple hundred friends and family, sort of a password protected access to the app, uh-huh. a web app at the time, you know, a website. Told them to just kick the tires, keep it to yourselves, give us feedback, et cetera. And I think two or three weeks later, there was something like 5,000 people that were using it, clearly driven to share it. I know there's a small numbers in the scheme of things, but that's some that said something. So then, uh, so then it's clear that people really like it. Yeah. So you launch it, yes. and then and then and then what happens? Like, did did you find a way to get revenue right away, or did you just you launched it and then see what happens? So we launched it initially thinking it would be a subscription product. Mm-hmm. I think that lasted all three or four weeks. Okay. And essentially, it was like a ten hour free trial, then dropping your credit card, and no one was dropping in their credit card. They would just. Yeah sign off, erase their cookies, or whatever they needed to do to get some more time. But it was growing. People were logging into it. And then, and so we said, screw it. It's got to be free. We'll figure that out. Okay. And, and then it just took off. We went from zero to 50 million listeners in a couple of years without ever, literally ever marketing the product. Wow. It was just completely word of mouth. Wow. It was, it was, you know, it was the, it was the dream, you know, for a consumer product, what you dream of. Everything obviously starts to really change. Yeah. Um, everything about it. For one, the company starts to grow. Um, we raise another round of financing on the heels of this consumer growth, much larger round. Um, Crosslink comes in, and uh, and we are starting to sort of be on the map as a consumer product. Yeah. And it really was just an extraordinary. Th- those five, six, first five, six years were, you know, it was a euphoric experience where this product all just by itself it just worked we did a couple more rounds of financing you know adding hundreds of people then we started you know building ad business around it and then yes we went and moved into the realm of kind of licensing Hmm. um, as we got to be that large and attracted the attention of rights holders uh, so that opened up a new chapter for the company and so how did the business end up so like i have a now I have a Savant system, right? And yeah. it has this, uh, you, you connect your Pandora account, your Spotify, whatever yeah. you have. How does money go to Pandora when that happens? So there's kind of two fundamental businesses. There's the advertising business, mm-hmm. and then there's a subscription product. Okay. The advertising, the radio is kind of a lean back you know, uh, service, and it's free to the consumer. Okay. Um, and that uh, we uh, uh, derive revenue through advertising, um, and then pay a royalty for the songs used on the radio product. Okay. And the business is about selling enough advertising to meet your royalty obligations. The subscription product is a monthly fee, and you pay sort of a fixed uh, rate to, to, to labels, and that's directly licensed. 
Pandora's kind of when Pandora turned into a subscription product, all this kind of got bundled together. I so see. there's kind of like a, a menu for consumers, but you're giving sixty to seventy percent of your top line revenue out the door to royalties. So okay. it's a hard it's, it's a hard business. So things kind of started to go your way. Yeah. But was there a, I mean, it sounds like you had multiple near-death experiences. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but are there any in particular where you're just like, you know, there's this expression, uh, withio, we're fucked, it's over. Oh, yeah. <laughs> how many, how many withio, did you have any withios or did, was it just like one day at a time, a new withio? We had one really big moment in 2007 when we had an adverse ruling come out uh, on Capitol Hill around the royalty rate that we were paying for the music. So at the time, as a radio company, we were subject to, well, we, we operated under what's called a statutory license. So it's a federally mandated license that allows us to play all this music uh, without sort of directly licensing uh, the content. You just go to one kind of clearinghouse. It's a way to sort of empower radio, essentially, to, to, yeah. to um, operate as an industry. And every five years, per that statute, they essentially re-arbitrate the rate and it's a, it's a couple, it's a multi-year sort of uh, procedure overseen by three judges from the Copyright Office, the okay. Copyright Royalty Board. And uh, that board that year coughed up a ridiculous ruling that tripled the rates, essentially. And overnight meant we were all, every internet radio company was dead in the water. It would be impossible to build a business with those kind of rates. And I remember when I got the text, because we'd been waiting, and we knew it was coming out, we were waiting for it. I was on a bus in San Francisco. I saw it and I thought, oh, that's it. And I called Joe, the CEO. I mean, he called me, one of the two, <laughs> at that moment. And we had a board meeting the next day. And the discussion was, okay, like we have to shut down because we can't just incinerate more money here. And um, we may be liable. For yeah, this. you can't. And once you know this, like you can't kind of willingly, you know, violate it. And, and it's not a place you want to ask forgiveness. We decided that. We'd come this far. Let's at least see if we can't fix this legislatively. Yeah. You know, the old expression, an act of Congress, which is literally what it would take to fix it. And so we called, you know, some folks in D.C. to get a sense of, you know, how we do this. And every lobbyist we spoke to said, you, there's not a prayer of you getting this fixed. And you've got a big entrenched industry behind it. It was in the middle of the TARP bailout situation. Congress was distracted. And there's just no way. You can try if you want. Um, but we said, okay, well, we're going to try. And we hired a small lobbying firm. And then we arranged a grassroots campaign where we emailed our listeners. Oh. And thank God we had uh, uh, asked for a zip code when people registered on Pandora. Oh. And so we sent out these mailers, these emails. It came from me. It was a personal appeal saying, hey, this has just happened to Pandora. If you want us to survive and be around, please call your member of Congress. And here's their name and phone number because it was personalized, <laughs> the joy, the beauty of personalization. Um, we had maybe 10 or 12 million, 14 million listeners maybe at the time, maybe a little more. And the response was just extraordinary. The estimate of people that were in D.C. is that about 2 million people called their member of Congress or wrote them or faxed them or visited their offices to wow. protest this. And it was such an overwhelming response that Congress actually intervened. There was an act of Congress. <laughs> they called us to D.C., had a big meeting, <clears throat> members of the Senate, leaders of the Senate and the House, the Judiciary Committees, and it said, put us all in a room and said, okay, something's gone wrong here. Because literally their phones were ringing from 9 to 5, Monday through Friday, nonstop. Wow. We actually broke the fax infrastructure on Capitol Hill because so many faxes were sent in. 
And, and so the members turned around and said, something's gone haywire, you have to fix it. And so for a year, we renegotiated the rates, which is all very dicey, but managed to get them uh, essentially put back in a more normal place that allowed us to survive. And so, so like, how exactly did it break your business model? Because I guess in the past you said, hey, we operate like a radio station and mm-hmm. you take X percent of our revenue. Mm-hmm. And I suppose it gets spread pro rata across <laughs> the music industry somehow. So actually, that's on the broadcast radio side. So AMFM okay. has essentially gets a free pass. They pay the songwriters. It's called a publishing royalty. It's about 3 to 4% of revenue. They don't pay the performers. In the case of uh, internet radio, you pay a per song fee. You did under the CRB. So it didn't matter whether you were making money or not. You had a set fee. Every additional song that was streamed by each individual listener triggered a fraction of a penny. As you grew, so did your bills. Yeah. Didn't matter if you were monetizing or not. So, you know, you, you, a couple things, right? So you became a CEO and you'd never really been a business guy before. Yeah. Uh, what do you think? What do you think you got right as a first-time CEO, and what do you think you weren't so good at? <laughs> well, so I was CEO twice <clears throat> there yeah. at Pandora. I was a CEO about a year and a half in. I came, uh-huh. I came and replaced John, and that was a very particular job as a CEO. We were, you know, fighting for our life, and it was about evangelism. It was war about motivate. Yeah, it's exactly total wartime. Like, let's go, people. You know. Two more weeks, let's go. And I was out on the road all the time trying to raise money. I was trying to get a, these customers to, to, you know, sell, sell, sell out. I was spending a ton of time in Minnesota trying to get Best Buy on board. So I was just selling constantly. And that was my, that was my entire, that sort of the entirety of my, of my role in addition to sort of um, motivating the team. And that, I think, was really my strong suit. In hindsight, I think I did that really well. I guess you could say anybody who takes 348 venture pitches to raise money maybe isn't so good at it, um, but no one was raising money back then. And I think when we raised that money, it was a minor miracle even then in 2005. And to keep people there for two years, yeah. And nothing. Yeah, and, 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 and you know, Walden had no business investing in us. We were, that, that was a really dumb investment, you know, <laughs> in terms of, it was ir- fundamentally irrational. I was, I was definitely the right CEO for the company then. It's what, what we needed. It was a story, you know, I, I, you needed the person who was the sort of heart of the company out there trying to convince other people to believe. When I came back to be CEO was to replace um, Brian McAndrews in 2017, uh, 15. And that was an utterly different, I walked into, you know, a public company with a multi-billion dollar cap doing over a billion in revenue, 2,500 employees. And in the penalty box, you know, stock down 70%. An investor, a really aggressive investor, active investor, activist investor in the stock, and boy, just a different animal, mm-hmm. and really also on the wrong side of the music industry at that point. So we were adverse to our content suppliers. I feel very mixed about my performance during that time. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are things I think I did that were really good. I, I, I brought the music industry back around. We wound up signing direct deals that people thought we'd never sign. We launched a whole new product, a subscription product. A little bit late at that point, so that was that was tough. But had I to do it again, when I came in in 2015, there was kind of an opportunity to hit the reset button and say, okay, uh, and, and uh, Peter Chernin said this to me too. He said, look, when you come in, you got a month, you yeah. know, and you get a path. For a month, like, make changes. Do what you got to do. Yeah. I don't trickle it out. Break glass. Yeah, you get permission yeah. when you start. And 
I wasn't brave enough to do what I needed to do at that time. And what I really should have done is reset everything. I should have reset Wall Street expectations, sort of reset even internally the company on what was ahead, instead of just grabbing the steering wheel and keeping going. And you know, there were investors willing to do that. You know, and after when I came back in, a bunch of investors came back in the stock actually. And I think in hindsight, they're looking for a change. Yeah. And and I, gosh, I wish I could have that back again. And they thought this is the only guy that can make that. Right. He has the voice and moral. And I could have done it. You know, it's it's I could have done it. Um, now, sort of the other path, the one that I didn't take, the road less traveled, would have had plenty of risk. You know, it would have been it would have involved raising you know a half a billion or a billion dollars, and you know, shooting the moon and saying, we're going to, you know, move fast, sort of break some of the business we already have, do things differently, and heck, turn our economics upside down for a while as a public company, you know, and the stock could have gone to, I'm not sure what, but that was how we could have achieved greatness, you know. I will say that the fork in the road, though, that we didn't take, that to me is the most obvious in hindsight, because at that point, we're pretty far down this path, and it was hard to fix was sort of years before, frankly, in 2009 and 10, when we, we could have this space to ourselves. Mm. We were just, we were the dominant company um, in this space, growing super fast. We actually were growing super fast overseas, too, just as fast as in the U.S. We had to shut that all down. But at that moment, we should have gone to the labels, no matter what the, you know, setting aside all the adversity that was going on, said, okay, let's, let's really work together. And they were reaching out to us, you know, and back-channeling. We was kind of like, look, it's, what we're doing is kind of working, you know? It's, this is the classic innovator's dilemma. Like, it's so yeah. funny. Yeah. As a, you know, a young startup, we're already facing the innovator's dilemma because <laughs> we've got this fast-growing business. You know, I mean, I mean, yes, we weren't profitable, but our audience was growing in leaps and bounds, and revenue was doubling, tripling. I mean, it, was, broke. it didn't yeah. look bad. Yeah. So, again, that's, that's sometimes, oftentimes, the times when you need to really you know, reinvent yeah. and you have the luxury to do it. And had we done that, I think we would have, we would have dominated the entire industry at that yeah. point. Um, yeah. We could have been global and been subscription and radio and, you know. So um, somewhere out there, there's a founder, maybe they're, maybe they're facing uh, what you went through, doubting whether they're right in the first place. Uh, who knows, right? <laughs> what, what advice would you give them? What advice would you give whoever's listening <laughs> that they could that they could learn from your story. When I think about all the you know the entrepreneurs that I've talked to over the years, you know, at conferences and whatnot, that are kind of struggling through their their company, the most significant question they always ask me is about this. It's like it's one form is when should I quit? Yeah. That's one form of the question. And You're a bad guy to ask. Yeah, that. you know, and the and yeah, exactly, you know, or how did you stay so long in what you're doing? You know, they're really looking for validation. Yeah, because I think they all feel like, what am I doing? You know, yeah. am I just wasting? And I and you know, I I uh, it's easy to say this, but I think the most important mindset to have as an entrepreneur is, okay, I've chosen this, mm -hmm. and this is my life. Yeah, and we don't know how it's going to turn out. Right. But I'm not doing it because I'm guaranteed a reward at the end. I'm doing it because this is what I do. Yeah. And embrace that. And, and my wife gave me the single best piece of advice I ever could have had. She said, you've got to stop being self-conscious about being an entrepreneur. Embrace it. Yeah. And, and it's okay if it fails. To me, 
life's great regret, the great risk of regret in life is not having tried something and failing. It's winding up older saying, ah, oh, I wish I had tried. Yeah. Because that's a regret you can never, ever get over. And you can, yeah, you can never know what would have happened. You know, if you tried, you know, okay, you can say you could have done this better or this better, but that's a, that's a small regret. Yeah. The regret of I had a chance to do this and I decided not to because I was too scared. Ugh. That's hard to live down. Yeah, and and to me, interestingly, that's another similarity with artistry, right? Like uh, the great artists, I don't think ever said, "Here's my decision tree." Yeah. I could be an artist, or I could be the. It's like money or no <laughs> money. You know, in fact, most of the famous artists whose paintings are worth millions of dollars now didn't make any money. The yeah, time, but yeah, that's just what they did. And I, you know, I think the, the 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 one thing I do feel for f- folks that are contemplating this entrepreneurship are in it is. If your own personal makeup makes uncertainty and such just really hard, mm-hmm. it may not be for you. You know, right. it's fine. It's okay to recognize that and say this is just for me psychologically or for whatever. It's just not a good fit because if you if it really is that like that for you, then the experience of doing it's going to be a lot less fun, and yeah. you'll probably be more likely to be have regret. You won't also probably won't be able to do the things you need to do to succeed <clears throat> because you'll be you'll hard. It's harder for you. It's fair to say it's not for everybody. Right. That's true. All right. Well, Tim, thanks for taking the time. It's my pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having great me here. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> thanks for listening to the Starting Greatness podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or you're new to the show, I hope you listen to our past interviews with legendary founders like Reed Hoffman, Mark Andreessen, the Instagram founders, and Keith Raboy. I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And if you like the show, I'd be grateful if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow me on Twitter at M2JR and subscribe to our newsletter for exclusive content and events at greatness.substack.com. Until we catch up again, I hope you'll never let go of your inner power to do great things in whatever matters to you. Thank you for listening. Mm